as you will no doubt recall, Colossians 1, 9 through 12 has the petitionary prayer of Paul and Timothy in behalf of the Colossians. And you will no doubt recall that this prayer contains one main petition, that God will fill the Colossians to capacity with an exhaustive and personal knowledge of his revealed will, with every degree of spiritual perception and comprehension, and also aptitude for applying that truth in their lives. Uh, Verse uh, (coughs) 9. The purpose envisioned behind such a filling with the knowledge of the divine will is that the Colossians would please God by living their lives in a way becoming to, appropriate to their profession of the gospel and of the Lord Jesus, that there would be no hypocrisy, no boasting of their possession of the law while then breaking it, as was the case with the Jews, no shaming of the Lord, but an adorning of their profession of their go- of the gospel, thereby pleasing the Lord. And this walking in a way becoming to the Lord is further explained uh, with four specific items or uh, examples which characterize such a way of life. Uh, characterizing a God-honoring, God-pleasing way of life and also a, uh, secured by the filling uh, with the knowledge of the divine will was a general gospel holiness which was described under the words bearing fruit in every good work, an extensive, comprehensive, fruit-bearing in holiness, answerable to the extensive, comprehensive filling with knowledge of the divine will. And, of course, these things must be connected because good works are only such as God has commanded in his word. And so a knowledge of his word, of his revealed will, is necessary to obey him rightly. But of course this filling is more than just a notion because as the Spirit imparts knowledge, it also imparts power. The Spirit must bear fruit in the believer because the Spirit is not a barren tree. So uh, this filling with the knowledge of the divine will secures a general gospel holiness that is the first aspect of a worthy, uh, God-pleasing, God-honoring way of life. The second thing set forth, also in verse 10, is is, uh, an increase or a growth in the knowledge of God. Not now the knowledge of his will, but the knowledge of his person, who he is, his character, his attributes, his being, his essence. An increase in all of those things that are vital to relationship as well as obedience. And not just the having of this knowledge, but the increasing of it is what is set forth here. The God-honoring walk 
is one in which we are growing in the knowledge of God, and that is pleasing to him. Just as he is pleased to be our father, so he is pleased to have a loving relationship with us. And this, too, is secured by the Holy Spirit's powerful filling of the soul with the intimate knowledge of the will of God. Because as we know of his deeds, and as we know of his commands, and as we know of what he has revealed of himself in his word, so we know him. As he reveals himself to us as merciful, so we are inclined to go to him for mercy. As he reveals himself to us as powerful, so we are inclined to go to him for protection. As he reveals himself to us as holy, so we are inclined to go to him for sanctification and cleansing from sin. So that his revelation of himself, when blessed by the Holy Spirit of God, his revelation of his will, uh, when blessed by the Holy Spirit of God, causes us to grow in our relationship with him and to increase in our knowledge of God. And that is pleasing to him. And that, too, is necessary if we are to walk in a way becoming of the gospel and honoring to God. We must walk in a holy way and we must walk in a way of increasing in the knowledge of him. Now, the third thing is set forth in verse 11, and that's where we begin today. Being strengthened uh, with all strength according to the power of his glory unto all patience and long-suffering with joy. Uh, this is a long text, and it basically divides into three parts. Uh, this is, as we said, the third item which describes what it is to walk in a way becoming to God. Not only uh, bearing fruit into every good work, not only increasing in the knowledge of God, but also being strengthened with all strength, or as it reads in the text, with all strength being strengthened. Now, the first thing we notice is, again, the use of the word all with all strength being strengthened unto all patience. Uh, we saw before that this filling with the Spirit was a filling to capacity, that the knowledge with which we were filled was an exhaustive knowledge in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, and that that led to a God-honoring walk that pleased the Lord in all things by securing a holiness that bears fruit in every good work and a comprehensive and exhaustive knowledge of God. And so continuing the pattern, we have also all strength unto all patience and long-suffering with joy. So there is still an emphasis being laid upon the extensive and comprehensive nature of this work of God's grace. Now, we come to the thing itself with all strength being strengthened. Uh, this word is translated in Scripture variously as strength, power, might, ability. There is an alliteration in the Greek, which is not preserved in the authorized version for some reason unknown to me, but I've given you here, with all strength being strengthened. Uh, 
once again, the action considered is passive. Just as we do not fill ourselves with the Spirit, uh, just as the increase in the knowledge of God was considered as passive, uh, just as the bearing of fruit, uh, so also here. It is being strengthened with all strength. We do not strengthen ourselves. We are being strengthened. And this empowerment is the direct result of our being filled with a knowledge of the divine will. <coughs> We are naturally weak, not strong. If we are to live this part of the God-honoring walk, this all patience and long-suffering with joy, we must have strength and aid from outside of ourselves. We must have the work of God's grace in us. Apart from God, we can do nothing adequately and especially, we cannot do this thing. We must be strengthened, and this is still the fruit of God's filling us with the knowledge of his will, still a part of Paul's prayer, not praying for them to strengthen themselves, not praying for them to uh, stir up in themselves steadfastness and patience and joy, but to pray that God would strengthen them with all strength, that they might uh, have all patience and long-suffering with joy. And as if to emphasize this fact, Paul calls attention explicitly to the source of this strengthening and to the extent of this strengthening. He says, being, with all strength being strengthened according to the power of his glory. Uh, first of all, it is a divine strengthening. It is according to the power of his glory, God's glory. And this divine strengthening bears a proportional relationship to the power of his glory. And that's not little. The relationship between the strengthening is not proportional to anything in us. It is not proportional to our strivings and workings and endeavors. That would be a very low, discouraging sort of a ceiling. The, the strengthening here that he is talking about is proportional to the power of God's glory. How much strengthening can we have, in other words? Well, how much power does God's glory represent? It's so great that it's immeasurably great. We could never exhaust it. But what is the power of his glory? What does it mean? Uh, incidentally, it is not his glorious uh, power. Uh, it is literally the power of his glory, which is a different concept altogether. The word power here is a different word from the one used for strength. Uh, though in this type of usage they're close to synonymous. And if there is a distinction, it's this. The first word, stre being strengthened with all strength, uh, is the word dunamis, and it, often it refers to the concept of ability. It points towards ability. We are enabled by an enabling unto perseverance, if you will. The word here for the power of his glory, which is kratos, points to the source of the enabling, and it is always, almost always used to reflect an intrinsic attribute of God. 
But I won't push that. It's only used probably eight or ten times, and almost all of them are directly referring to, to, to an attribute of God except for one that's talking about Satan. <clears throat> the emphasis here is not, of course, on the power, but on the fact that this power of God is related to his glory. God's glory has a power that is characteristic of it. How is that? Why is that? Well, it is because God is not only all-glorious in himself. He accomplishes his glory. He glorifies himself by the execution of his eternal counsel. And part of his eternal counsel is the holiness of the elect, good works that he has foreordained that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. And part of the holiness of the elect is our endurance and patience of tribulation with joy. So that, for, that God, for his glory, and in a measure according to the power of his glory, strengthens his people with all strength, for the purpose of their endurance and patience, patience and long-suffering with joy. The strengthening is from God, according to these verses, and it is answerable in its extent to the power characteristic of his glory. Now, we'll come back and talk about that some more later, but you get the general idea. And now then we come also to the purpose of this strengthening of believers. It is unto all patience and long-suffering with joy. The first word is the Greek hupomone, and it is almost always translated patience in the, in the authorized version. It is patience particularly in the idea of endurance. Uh, and in fact, when it's used as a verb rather than as a noun, it is almost always translated to endure something. And so that's the concept behind this Greek word's idea of patience. It's endurance. Uh, the primary angle of the word in Scripture is this. It refers to the patient endurance of tribulation and trial. And in fact, the very purpose of tribulation is to work this very grace of hupomone, of patience. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Uh, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. And patience, experience, and experience, hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Also, James, same word, James uh, chapter 1, verse 3, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. So, uh, the very purpose of tribulation is to work this grace. And particularly, the idea behind this word is a steadfastness in the things of God uh, while enduring tribulation and persecution. You see, it's not just some sort of uh, moralistic, uh, uh, abstract 
heathen virtue of patience, that uh, when you suffer, you just sort of stoically take it. It's not that idea at all. It is a steadfastness in the things of God under tribulation, an endurance in the things of God under tribulation. And it has its eye towards the promise of God, which is yet future in its fulfillment. In other words, patience does not demand reward, relief now, but it keeps looking on to the future, to the promise of God. Let me give you a couple of examples, both from the book of Hebrews, which is very much a book about faith. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 36. Call to remembrance the former days, in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of a great fight of afflictions, partly whilst you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst you became companions of them that were so used. For you had compassion of me in my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which has great recompense of reward, for you have need of patience, <coughs> that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. So you see what he's talking about here. He says, when they believe the gospel, suddenly tribulation fell upon them. They were made a gazing stock by reproaches, by afflictions, a great fight of afflictions. Persecutions fell upon them and upon those that they knew in the faith. They even suffered the loss of their belongings, of their worldly goods. And what did they do? They took it joyfully. He says, you have need of patience that after you've done the will of God, you might receive the promise. They had done the will of God. And what they received was tribulation and a great fight of afflictions, not uh, the reward, not the promise. So they had to have patience that while they suffered all things, they were looking towards the future, towards the reward, towards the promise. And so they could take joyfully the spoiling of their goods because that they knew that in heaven they had laid up a better and an enduring substance. They didn't have it yet, but it was there, and they looked for that. And this is faith. The just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Faith and patience, vitally intertwined. Hebrews 12, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised, despising the shame, 
and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. You have not yet resisted in the blood, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. So, in this passage, he's talking about the entire Christian life set before them. There is a race uh, set before them that they have to run, that they have to finish. And it requires patience in order to do so. And he sets before them the example, first of all, of all of these witnesses that he's talked about in the previous chapter. That by faith, by faith, they obtained a good report through faith, but received not the promise. You see, they, had, they went through a trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn asunder, tempted, slain with the sword, wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and tormented, wandering in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. You see, they were following God. And this is what they got for it in the world. So it required patience and faith, because they weren't getting the reward. They were getting the chastisement that God scourges every son whom he receives. So he sets forth before them, first of all, that example of all these believers, of all of the ages past, and, and, and how they had to, by faith, follow God, because tribulation came upon them, and they had to look into the future for the reception of the promise. And then he sets forth to them in verse 2 another example, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. What better example? What did Jesus get in the world? He endured the cross, despising the shame. Why? For the joy that was set before him. There was a promise to the Lord Jesus. And so that when he endured the cross and despised the shame, he was raised up and given all power and set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so he endured shame and the cross and such contradiction of sinners against himself. And he says, set this example, let this example be before you. See how the Lord Jesus had to, ha had to run his race with patience. He had to wait and have faith in the promise that he would receive. Oh, he says, you have not resisted unto blood striving against sin. You haven't anywhere near suffered what these holy men of old suffered and what the Lord Jesus suffered. Run the race with patience. And don't forget then the third thing he sets forth, that it is the, chast the chastening of the Lord in many cases. He's scourging you. He's scourging you so that you will be holy and be in subjection to him. He says, he says, he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. 
Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. So lift up the hands which hang down in the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it be rather be healed. He says, don't be depressed. It, the Lord, by tribulation, scourges us that we might partake of his holiness. It doesn't seem to be joyous, but it is because of what it yields. So lift up the hands which hang down in the feeble knees. Be encouraged. Don't be discouraged. Patience is the enduring of tribulation with steadfast faith in the promise of God and in obeying Him. The second word, makrathrumia, <coughs> unto all patience and long-suffering. It is a compound of the words long and wrath. Long wrath. Now, if you just thought that, you'd think that he was saying that we should have a lot of wrath, that we should be long in our wrath. But that isn't what it means. It, the idea is one in whom wrath is a long way away, one who is not soon awakened to wrath, but who endures a long season of contradiction before his ire is aroused. It is usually used, almost always, to refer to God as an attribute of God. Uh, but there's a couple of places where it's used to refer to believers. Uh, James chapter 5, verse 10. He says, Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord, for an example of suffering affliction and of, uh, of, of patience, of long-suffering is the word. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Uh, you have heard of the patience of Job, and that's our other word. So right here, in, in verse 10, he uses makrathrumia, the prophets, as an example of suffering affliction and of, law, and of long suffering. And then the patience of Job, our first word. So they're probably, in some senses, close to synonymous. Uh, but the idea here, while, while the idea of patience is that, uh, as we talked about, is that is that enduring tribulation with steadfastness in the promises of God and obedience to Him. Matthrumia is more how we respond. It's that we are long-suffering, that we are not soon angry by tribulation. Uh, the prophets are an example of suffering affliction and of long-suffering. He says, you see how the prophets suffered affliction. And they didn't lash out in vengeance. They didn't strike out. They didn't become angry against God. No, they were long-suffering. Behold, we count them happy, which endure. Uh, <clears throat> and in fact, interestingly, the context here in verse 9, grudge not one against another, uh, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge stands before the door. Uh, and in fact, going back even further than that, uh, be patient, therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. Uh, behold, the husbandman waits for the precious fruit of the earth, and he has long patience for it until he received the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draws near. Uh, he says, don't. In the context, he's saying, don't don't be disturbed by the rich, by the wickedness of the rich. 
but be patient unto the coming of the Lord. Establish your hearts and don't grudge against one another because the, he's almost here to judge. To judge, Take the prophets as an example of suffering, affliction, and of long-suffering. And then when we go over and compare that with our other passage that uses this word to refer to men, Ephesians 4.2, he says, I beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So here, long-suffering is connected with, with the brethren, just as in James 5. Grudge not one against another. Be long-suffering. The idea uh, is perhaps... Uh, better understood to some degree by its opposite. The opposite of the patience that we described would be murmuring, growing sour with complaint and carping against the Lord's providence. The opposite of long-suffering is being quick to anger when faced with contradiction and trouble. Whether that's against a brother who sins, quick to anger, or just when faced with the tribulations and hostility and opposition of the world. But it always implies that there is an enemy. Because whenever it's referred to God, it always refers to how, to enemy, how, how he's long-suffering towards his enemies. And so it is here. Someone, some adversary to you in Ephesians 4.2 who's a brother. He says, forbear one another in love. Be long-suffering. James uh, 5 there, don't hold a grudge. Why would you hold a grudge? It implies that someone's done something wrong against you. He says, don't do that. Be long-suffering. Forgive one another. But there's something further added here as well. Sometimes we think that if we just restrain our lips from open anger against the Lord, we must be being patient. If we restrain ourselves from exacting vengeance from those who sin against us, we must be being long-suffering. But yet the heart is dark and despondent and full of full of grudge and full of malice and full of impatience that's not it he says he says here in colossians strengthened with all strength according to the power of his glory unto all patience and long suffering with joy patience is not a silent endurance uh, like you might endure going to the dentist uh, or surgery with some sort of stoicism. That's not what's in mind here. It is a joyful submission to the Lord's providence in light of his promises. All things work together for good. No scourging seems joyous. And those very words imply that, they, that it is. And human long-suffering is not merely a restraint of the execution of your wrath. It is a joyful embrace of those circumstances which would normally draw forth anger and retribution. Paul says we glory in tribulation. It reminds us of those who, when persecuted, rejoiced at being found worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Count it all joy, my brethren. 
Count it all joy when you fall into diverse tribulations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. You see, that's very similar to the passage in Hebrews. He says, he says, don't be despondent because you suffer the scourging of the Lord. Because even though it doesn't seem joyous, it has a fruit, a fruit of righteousness. And, and, and we become partakers of the holiness of God, and that is joyous. Now, a joyful submission and embrace of conflict with patience and long-suffering is not natural to man. It is not natural to the flesh. The flesh is impatient, murmuring, soon angry, frustrated, grudge-holding. This is not normal, if you will. It is not normal to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It is not normal to, if a man takes your cloak, to give him your coat also. And if a man asks you to go one mile with him, go with him too. It is not normal to suffer violent persecution that culminates in death and to rejoice and praise God and to be full of joy. It requires the work of God. It is the end result of God's strengthening of his people. And it is a powerful strengthening. And it must be a powerful strengthening. I think the words of Edie are good here. He says, if the spiritual strength given to believers be after the measure of the might of this glory, with what courage and ability shall they be armed? Will they not, with so much of God in them, realize the godlike in spiritual heroism so as to resist evil, overcome temptation, banish fear, surmount difficulty, embrace opportunities of well-doing, obtain victory over death, and prove that they are able to rise above everything before which unaided humanity sinks and succumbs? Strengthened with all strength, according to the power of his glory unto all patience and long-suffering with joy. Uh, now, we need to consider two things by way of connecting this with uh, the context and then look at some applications. The first thing is to remember that this is the third item in our list describing what it is to honor God in living. It is to bear fruit in holiness unto every good work. It is to increase in the knowledge of God and in relationship with Him. And it is to be strengthened so that we might uh, endure tribulation with patience and long-suffering and joy. It pleases God and it honors him when his saints joyfully persevere in tribulation, trusting in him. Because you see, it's in tribulation that men prove that they trust God. And that brings him glory. It is dishonoring to God when his saints murmur. In fact, God destroyed some certain Jews in the wilderness for murmuring. It is dishonoring to God when his people grow angry and vengeful. The murmuring challenges God's wisdom in executing his eternal counsel in providence. And the soon angry, 
vengefulness challenges his faithfulness to his promises to uphold and deliver his people. But patience and long-suffering demonstrate God's supernatural grace, demonstrates the otherworldly minds of his people and how they despise the world because their heart is where their treasure is and their treasure is laid up in heaven. Gladly will they suffer the spoiling of their earthly goods. Patiently will they endure suffering because they trust in the Lord. Not soon angry because vengeance is the Lord's and belongs not to man. Endurance and long-suffering with joy demonstrates, uh, shows forth God's promises and how much to be preferred God is than the things of the world. So it's the third item that is absolutely vital to walking worthy of the Lord, and the opposite of it is shameful. Uh, Living an ungodly life is shameful. Not increasing in the knowledge of God, not knowing God, while professing his name is shameful. Being an impatient, vengeful, wrathful person who cannot suffer the least tribulation and who is uh, dark and dour whenever it comes is shameful to a person who professes God's name. The second thing, by connection with our context, is that again, just as the other items, this is secured by the filling with the knowledge of the divine will, because we're still in the fruit of Paul's prayer. Now, how is being strengthened with all strength unto all patience and long-suffering with joy secured by being filled with the knowledge of the divine will? Well, like hope that we talked about before, Patience and long-suffering are based upon the promises of God and his revelation of himself. What purpose would there be in long-suffering except that we have the revelation that God will in due time exalt his people and avenge their miseries? What purpose in the patient endurance of tribulation except that we know that God works all things together for good to those that love him, that it is a chastisement and a scourging that makes us to be holy, that it glorifies God and it is part of his sovereign, all-wise determining of all things in the execution of his eternal counsel? God does not call us to patience and long-suffering in a vacuum like some sort of Greek stoicism. It is in conjunction with his self-revelation, and it is only possible for us if we know the promises of God, you see. Because if we don't know that the treasure in heaven is to be preferred to all earthly riches, then we will not take joyfully the spoiling of our goods. Because our hearts will be here and not there. If we do not know that God chastens and scourges every son whom he receives so that he'll be a partaker of his holiness and have the fruit of righteousness eternally, then when we receive scourging and chastisement, we will not like it and we will be angry and upset. If we do not know of the promises of God, we cannot have the faith which causes us to stand in the day of tribulation, being strengthened by God. It is a knowledge of the, of the revealed will of God that lays the foundation for the strengthening of the Spirit that causes us to be patient and long-suffering with joy. Now let me give a few applications. 
It is God's will that we suffer tribulation. I hope no one here would actually deny that. Christ, uh, Christian suffering is not Satan overcoming God. It is not simply the fruit of sin, which if we repent of it will be removed. It is God's will by the accomplishment of which he is glorified, his upholding, comforting strength is made known, his people are drawn closer to him and drawn off from the love of the world, the world is evidenced in its wicked opposition to his holiness, and thus the justness of God's condemnation of it. It is promised by Christ repeatedly. We are commanded to rejoice in it when it comes. Tribulation is set forth as a privilege and an honor, and the work and mark of God's love, and an opportunity for his glory to be manifested and magnified. Tribulation is God's will for his people. It is God's will that we suffer it patiently, without soon being angry, but instead rejoicing. <clears throat> I trust that you've got that idea by now. Thirdly, however, there are some encouragements in this. Uh, too often when we hear something like this, we think, oh my goodness, how can I possibly suffer tribulation joyfully? I don't have it in me. I, I just can't do it. Uh, I, if the least thing comes against me, I just fall down and get angry. And, uh, and, uh, and if someone persecuted me, I'd, I'd probably uh, uh, curse them to their face. And, and, uh, and I'd, never, I'd probably apostatize if I was uh, uh, put on the rack and all that sort of thing. Well... It's not in our power. So we need not rely on our strength. This is a prayer that being strengthened with all strength, we would have, uh, we would endure tribulation with patience and long suffering with joy. When we look at ourselves and we say, how could I possibly suffer what men have suffered in the past and still remain faithful to God? The answer to that, is you cannot possibly suffer what men have suffered in the past and remain faithful to God now. God, however, if you are his, will make you to be able to suffer those things if he purposes to send them upon you. Because it will be a scourging that you would be a partaker of his holiness. It will be a thing that comes so that Christ can be glorified. What we need is faith in God, that he will strengthen us with all strength. And of course, correspondingly, for our part, we need to search the scriptures and know the scriptures so that we would know of his revealed will and what his promises are. The second encouragement is this. Not only need we not rely on our strength, but the strength on which we do rely is an inexhaustible well. It is the power of his glory. What more supply do we need? What calamity can this store not resist? In the matter of God's glory, he will not be outdone. He will glorify himself in the exercise of his power, in strengthening his people in every tribulation. The flesh is powerless. The human spirit is a weak reed that will pierce the hand of the man who leans on it like Egypt. But God, 
the power of his glory is inexhaustible and will support us and lift us up in every tribulation, in every trial. We must have faith and lean upon the Lord. And so this brings us to our fourth comment, uh, which is that I fear that probably every one of us Uh, in light of these things, uh, has need of one or another degree of repentance. We must repent of our murmuring against the Lord, a thing which is shameful in the Christian, and which... uh, 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 Now, of course, bear in mind that we rarely murmur directly against the Lord. Just like uh, in the uh, so often in the accounts uh, of the Hebrews as they traveled through the uh, through the wilderness, they almost never would would actually raise their fist against heaven and say, uh, "How could God do this to us? Wicked God! Let's go back to Egypt." He doesn't say. They don't say that. They say, "Moses, you let us out here." And we're going to die out here, and and it's your fault. See that because they know the conscience restrains them from directly blaspheming against God, and so they pick on Moses instead. Now, God destroyed people for that because in reality, no matter what we deflect it, aim it at, it is murmuring against the Lord, and it is shameful and dishonoring to Him, and it does not please Him. And it does not adorn the gospel that we profess. And we must repent of murmuring. And we must repent of our failure to be long-suffering, of our soon angry against our brethren when they uh, transgress against us legitimately, uh, of of our uh, soon angry again against God, though deflected at something else, patience and long-suffering. That spirit of being soon angry, no matter what it is aimed at, is is shameful uh, and dishonoring. And of course, at the root of it all is lack of faith. Lack of faith. If we believed God and trusted in Him, then there would be, it's as they murmured because of their unbelief. And we grow angry against God because of unbelief. Do not believe His promises. We do not believe in His goodness and His love towards His people. We would rather have it some other way. And that in and of itself is a sin. I think that we can probably say to the Lord, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Uh, But uh, we need to go before the Lord in sorrow and repentance, beseeching that he might fill us with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that we might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God and being strengthened with all strength according to the power of his glory unto all patience and long-suffering with joy. Next week we'll consider the fourth item, uh, thankfulness.